Hi, good morning. Good morning. I'm Walter Spires. I'm excited to be with you this morning. So we are going to dive into this new year with a wonderful message. No looking back into 2022. And so many of us have a tendency to do that. So many of us have a tendency to look back. And I know that last year ended for many on a really difficult note. There were a lot of things going on. There were in our lives and the lives of friends and family, people that were struggling with horrible diseases and the loss of life of loved ones, children, just difficult stuff. Not a way you want to end the year, uh, have around the holidays, Christmas, things. It's just a difficult ending, and a number of you went through that. And we walked alongside people that were doing that as well. So that's a hard way to end. And yet we are now in a new year with new things, new mercies, as God's word said. Mercies are new every morning. And so I want to encourage us on this, but I want to give you a passage of Jesus, and really the the best passage in the scripture on this whole concept of not looking back. His is a strong message, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But before we do, let me pray us in. Father God, thank you for your word. Your word is truth, and we thank you for this new year with new things for us. Your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for that. We stand on your promises. We stand on the promises of your word that are renewed every year. You're faithful to us. And just because the calendar flipped over, you are unchanging. And we are so thankful for that. And we stand on that this morning as we dive into your word to help us understand what Jesus meant when he said no looking back. We ask it in his precious and wonderful name. Amen. So in Luke chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem. He was on his way to die. One Bible translation says he was on his way to his ascension. In other words, all the things that were going to happen well before that, and it was all the bloody, horrible suffering that we know, and then the wonderful, glorious, magnificent ascension, the very last thing on earth. But they were on the way there. And so as we look at this, I want to start reading a little bit ahead of our passage, but in Luke 9, to help you understand what was going on. In Luke 9.51, we read this. When the days were approaching for his ascension, as I just said, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers. His disciples were with him. A lot of crowd with him as well, but his 12 disciples were with him, the 12. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But the Samaritans did not receive him, meaning Jesus, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Now, let me give you a little background on that. I don't want to get bogged down in it, but it's important to understand and remember. I've taught you this before, but if you're new, let me make sure you understand who Samaritans were. They're traveling through Samaria, which most, a lot of Jews wouldn't do it. They considered these Samaritans who were the half-breeds, if you will, and I'm not saying that in any um, ugly um, way that's racist at all. They were breeds of people who were the Jews that were left in that region 
the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, as I said, and then the Assyrians who were transplanted down there. You see, when nations captured other nations, when the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom and all the other kingdoms, they, they were the world power. Later, it was Babylon. It was Greece and then Rome and on through. Uh, the Medo-Persians were in there after Babylon. They would They would kill some. They would export some of the smarter, better people, if you will, some of the royalty and, and the wise people, and they'd bring them into their court. That's how Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got to Babylon as opposed to being killed. They were considered the, the prime, the cream of the crop of the Jewish young men, and so they were taken, and that's how they um, were successful in helping God's people when they were actually captives in Babylon. So all this is going on, and so in Assyria finally captured the northern kingdom, then they would send people down there. They would, Assyrians would move there and move into cities, and ultimately they would intermingle and commingle, and they became uh, another race, if you will, interracial marriages between Assyrians and the Jews that remained. And so that interracial, that different, that half-breeds, if you will, of people, those were the Samaritans. That's where they came from. And so the Jews that were what they consider true Jews, the pure-blood Jews, hated those people. I mean, hated them so much so that when they were traveling from north to south, they would walk around Samaria often and not even go through the region. And it was a lot further to do that. If you walked around somewhere, mm. so that's where Jesus and his disciples and this crowd are coming down through Samaria, and he sent his disciples, some of them in, to, to make some arrangements for him, maybe to stay there. And what it says is that the people in that village, the Samaritan village, the Samaritans rejected him. Why? Because they knew that he was a Jew. He was a Jewish teacher, and they were on the way to Jerusalem. So they're thinking, you're not coming here. You're just going around like the rest of them. They're so used to being mistreated, they thought that they would throw some hate back Jesus' way. That's the intent that we get. So that's what happened on the way. Now, here's what's interesting. As we keep going, that's what happened, okay? They didn't receive them. So when disciples James and John saw this, and remember they were brothers, they were called the sons of thunder, that was their name. James and John saw this, and they said, Lord, talking to Jesus, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> now, it was presumptuous on their part to think that they could, but they were with Jesus, so they thought they could do anything. And you notice they didn't ask him to do it. They said, you want us to do that? Let's just come and call fire down and just zap these guys and burn them all up. That'll teach them. That'll teach them to treat our Jesus like that and us like that. Huh. That'll fix them. And so here's one of the uh, most interesting rebukes of Jesus. Jesus turned to them and, and rebuked them. And when he rebuked them, that means what he's about to say. He said with a very um, stern expression or voice or words and he said this you do not know what kind of spirit you are of for the son of man meaning himself did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them and he went on to another village here's another example why jesus came we talked about this in weeks past that he came for one reason to call sinners to repentance and not just to call them to repentance, but to offer salvation for their sins through his life. That's, that's why he's on the way to Jerusalem. 
He said, I didn't come to destroy men's lives. Look, men have done a good enough job of that themselves. And we have. And we still do. And that's why we need a savior. So James and John want to whack these guys with fire and just burn them up. No compassion, no nothing. Just, hey, you know what? They turned us away. Let's kill them. Now, that's a really interesting attitude. And especially as we learn later on who John is, who he becomes. And so this gives you some kind of an insight to the transformation that will occur in both of their lives, but especially in John later on. Just remember that as you're studying this and think about these disciples, James and John, who are two of the closest to him, Peter, James, and John were the three, the inner circle. At this stage, they hadn't grown very much. They hadn't become much like Jesus because they wanted to destroy these people simply for turning them away. All right, so let's keep going. That's part of the background. Now, now we get into the message for today in verses 57 to 62 in Luke 9. As they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, were going on down the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's the first encounter. We'll come back to these. I'm going to read through this whole passage. And then Jesus said to another, you follow me. But this man that Jesus was talking to said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, and here's our key verse for the day, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's talk about what that means. There were three encounters. We're going to briefly look at each. In verses 57 and 58, this young man comes to Jesus and said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. Wherever you're going, I'm going. Wherever you go. A lot of bravado in there. And so Jesus, he didn't rebuke him. He didn't say, great, come on. He just gave him a reality check with those words. And what did he say? It was a strange, strange response. But we know that the Jews of that day understood what he meant. And so let's look at what he responded. I'll follow you wherever you go, where you want to go. And Jesus said, the foxes have holes. That's where they live. That's where they go and hide and rest and do what they do. And the birds of the air have nests. We know that. Birds nest. They build nests. They stay there. They sleep there. They have their young. It is their homes. The holes in the ground. The foxes build those dens. I've never been down in one or seen in one. But that is their home. That's where they reside. That's where they get their comfort, their safety, and their security. The same for the birds in the nest. He closes that one liner with this. But the Son of Man, meaning himself, has nowhere to lay his head. What's he telling this young man who's got so much bravado that says, I'll go anywhere you're going. That's where I'm going. And Jesus lets him know that, listen, these animals even have places of comfort and safety. It's where they go and where they live. But we don't. 
I don't. These people following me, it is going to be rough. It's going to be hard. And Jesus was telling them this, the disciples, that he was going to be crucified. They didn't buy it. They didn't understand it. They didn't believe it yet. It hadn't, hadn't occurred to them this could possibly happen. But all along, he's warning them. He just tells this guy that absolutely says he'll follow him anywhere. Look, this is going to get hard. It's going to get hard. It's going to get really hard. And we don't have a home. We don't have any place to go. We just see where he was rejected. And if that, if that young man happened to be following along at that time, then he knew what happened. And Jesus was rejected from even going into that town in Samaria. So if he was still among that group, we don't know. But we know that's what Jesus told the young man. It's going to get hard. It's going to get hard. We don't have any further dialogue there. We don't know if, the, if, the, if he walked away. We don't know if he stayed as one of the followers. He was not one of the 12, obviously. We don't know. But Jesus was just telling anyone that stood up and claimed, boy, this is pretty cool. I like going with this guy doing miracles and stuff. And this is, this, I like this part. And the disciples did too. I'll just go with you anywhere you go. And he just told him it was going to get really, really hard. Well, in the second one, the second uh, encounter, it's really interesting because in the second encounter, unlike the first and third, Jesus called to the man. He called to the man and he said this, follow me. Just those words, follow me. Just follow me. Meaning come after me like these disciples would come after me. Follow me. Okay? This is a call from Jesus that was rejected, by the way, because of the condition the man put on it. Because what did he say? Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, that's an interesting dialogue. And again, sometimes we need to understand Jewish history and the familial history and, and responsibilities to, to get a good handle on what this exchange means. <laughs> Jesus was the one that called him. And rather than say, I'll follow you anywhere like the first one did, he gave him an excuse. He didn't even say, I'll follow you. He said, well, let me first go bury my father. Now, I've studied many commentaries. You can look at this. This doesn't mean that the father was dead. Because if the father had been dead at that time, then it would have been this Jewish man's responsibility, the son's responsibility to take care of all those arrangements of burying his father. So his father probably wasn't dead. Could have been like, you know, um, my father before he went home to be with the Lord and, or my Gigi's, you know, sometimes we have to go and, and make arrangements, take care of them. Could have been what he was talking about. Let me go and bury my father. Let me take care of all those things that are necessary because he's old and dying and I need to take care of that. That's my responsibility. So that's a possibility. We don't know exactly. We don't know exactly, but we do. We're pretty certain that the father probably wasn't dead. Otherwise, People would really be wondering, what are you doing here walking around with Jesus if your father's dead and hadn't been buried yet? So that was a good response from him because every Jew in the crowd knew, well, yeah, that's that's important. Jesus' response was unbelievable. And again, in that setting, in that time, and here's what he said. Let me read it again. Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God, that Jesus had arrived, that the kingdom of God was coming now because the presence of the Son of God was there. That's what's meant by the kingdom of God has arrived. 
The kingdom of God is among us, Jesus said in another place. So in that response, basically what Jesus is saying is, listen, it's so much more important for you to follow me, to follow me. I've called you to come and be one of my disciples, to come and follow me. And yet you said you'd rather go take care of these other things. It's interesting. Some of the commentaries on one that the dead bear the dead, it basically means, look, those who are dead and in the sense that we're all dead in sin before we receive Christ as Savior, that let those people take care of the things back there that need to be taken care of. It is much more important for you to do it. Follow me. And what did he tell him to do? The command was what? Go and proclaim the gospel. Go tell people the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what I want you to do. Not go worry about burying the dead or your father taking care of that. That's not important relative to the work of the kingdom. And people make excuses all the time. Well, I can't do that. Christians do it. Christians may be called to do something that's hard, that takes you someplace where you don't want to go. And we say, Lord, I need to be here because my family's here. I need to be here because I need to take care of elderly parents. I need to be here because of this, because of that. Those are important things. Those are important things. They are. But they are not important compared to what Jesus is saying here, and it's a call. Jesus called him. So if God has put a calling on your life and Jesus has called you as he has called me, then we need to be obedient to that calling. Wherever it is, whatever it is, I can't say, well, Lord, you know, gosh, all my family's here in Nashville and, you know, Franklin area, and we really love it here. We've moved a bunch, and I'm getting older, and I don't really want to go anywhere else or do anything else. This is it. This is good. We're good. If Jesus says, no, go here, then we're to go here. That's how it works. And if he says, go there, go there. If he says, stay, then we stay. But as Christians, we need to be listening in, listening in, leaning in to what the Lord God is saying to us. And the only way we can do that, the only way, and let me challenge you in this new year to do this, is to be on your knees, on your knees before the Lord, confessing your sin, clearing the slate, and saying, Lord, what do you have for me in 2023? What is it? Am I being disobedient, stuck here, staying where I am? Am I doing exactly what you want me to do? And then we study his word because, again, we see these things. We're taught these things in his word. So there's only two ways apart from some divine intervention, and that doesn't happen much, because he's given us that revelation through his word, and he speaks to us through the Holy Spirit in our prayer. So that's what Jesus is teaching here. I told you to follow me. I told you it's going to be rough when you do. And I told you it's more important than taking care of the family matters of, you know, burying the dead and all that. And in fact, that bleeds over into the third one. And the third one, another young man said to him, Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but, <laughs> but, you see, so many people, so many people who are Christians or think that they are Christians, because we're going to talk about that as we wrap up here. I'll follow you, Lord, but, and so we put conditions on it, somewhat akin to what I was just talking about. We put conditions on it. Yeah, Lord, I'll receive you as my Savior, but, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go, but, 
and, and in the case of both of these examples, the but seems pretty, pretty good. Makes sense to the Jews. Go bury your dad or take care of all that. That makes sense. Jesus said, no, this is more important. The third one, but, was this. But, this is a pretty simple request. Let me, let me go say goodbye to those at home. I'll follow you. I'm coming. But let me just go say goodbye. Jesus said to him, and here's the verse. This is where he applied it. All he wanted to do is just go say goodbye. Hey, I'm coming. I'll be on your side. I'm, I'm just about to come. Let me go throw some things together, say goodbye, and I'm right there. This is when Jesus throws out this verse that is, that is powerful, so much more powerful than I ever realized in my life before I started studying to preach this even today. And I've read this verse and seen this verse for 50 years, even going back to my youth. I didn't understand it. Perhaps I didn't understand what I thought I knew even up to this point. But that's the key verse. Jesus said to him, after his simple request of, well, let me just go say goodbye. So, hey, goodbye. I'm going heading off. I'm going to follow Jesus and go be one of those guys. Jesus said this. No one, after putting his hand to the plow, and there's a key, and looking back, looking back, which is our message title today, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and then looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. It's fit for the kingdom of God. We've seen these other three examples. We've seen the three examples of what Jesus meant and how serious was the call. Now, some would argue, well, this is the call for people called into ministry and pastors and teachers and missionaries and whatever. <clears throat> it is. But most take this to be that broad commentary, the, the broad calling to anyone who's in Christ. And so let's talk about this. No one after putting his hand to the plow. Now, I'm fortunate in that I've seen a plow, and you've seen, you can Google pictures of them, and quite frankly, they didn't change a whole lot over the years. My father, who grew up during the Depression, he was born during the Depression, and as a little boy, would have to go plow cotton fields. He's from South Alabama, and they were dirt poor, literally, and dirt farmers, and when you planted cotton, if you've ever been in the Deep South, and you see cotton fields today, they don't look like they did then. Uh, they were scraggly, and those plows were some wooden handles, just like he's talking about, putting your hands to the plow. And it had this metal sharp blade on it, and it had these, and the Bible times it would have a pair of oxen, at least a pair of oxen. If you were poor, maybe you had an ox, one, but a pair, and like in Elijah's time, when he called Elisha, he had like, I think it was 12 pair of oxen, so they must have been extremely wealthy. But nonetheless, they're plowing. And they're plowing in these fields. And so when you're plowing, you're holding this rickety little wooden thing with a sharp blade on the front. With a, In the case of, um, in the Bible times, it was an ox. With my father, it was a mule. Mules in the south pulled plows. They didn't have any farm equipment and all that stuff. They were poor people. So they had a mule and they had a plow. And you'd get behind there. And it was hard work to keep that mule going and going straight and holding on so that you could plow a straight furrow. That's what this called, right? A furrow. To plow a straight line, you had to hold on tight. You had to put a lot of effort and energy into it to keep that mule going, in his case, the ox. Keep that blade in the ground so it wouldn't keep popping up and you'd miss spots. It was hard work plowing. Hard work. And so I know it from what my father used to tell me about plowing when he was a boy plowing to plant cotton. 
And I read it here and see the same thing. They're plowing to plant whatever they're planting in their fields. And Jesus used that analogy. Once you put your hand in that plow, you better not be looking back. You better be looking straight ahead where you're going to plow a straight field because you're going to plow that field. And what's the field? The field is the world where we are plowing to plant seeds, to reap a harvest. It all ties together if we understand it. So Jesus saying is to you and to me, as he said to these people, if you if you call yourself a Christian and you put your hands on that plow and you start looking back, <laughs> what happens? Well, let's just think about that. Several things happen. You start plowing the fruit, cooking fruit. You just go off in a different direction. Sometimes you don't even know it. Here's a good example. You know when you're driving your car and your kids are acting up in the back seat and you reach around to try to get their attention, what happens? Whoop! You do this, you turn that wheel, you drop something in the floorboard maybe, and you reach over to pick it up. Or ladies, you drop your purse or it falls off the seat, you reach over to get it. Whoop! You see, the, the least amount of attention spent away from or not focused on what you're supposed to be doing causes all kinds of problems. Back then it caused, caused you to plow crooked furrows or to, or to get the plow out of the ground or get the ox all disturbed or whatever. There were issues with that. In the car examples, could cause you to have a wreck. You're not paying attention. So keeping your hand to the plow, the straight and narrow, is extremely important. There are other places where it talked about the straight and narrow. It's the same references to this with the plow, the straight and the narrow. We're plowing their narrow furrows, but when we plow them and we do it well, we can plant seeds in there that do what? They grow up, there's a heart, they bear fruit, and there's a harvest. And it all ties together here. Those are the consequences of looking back and the blessings of staying focused, staying focused and plowing ahead, as Jesus said. But he closed that chapter and those different encounters with those last words that are frightening, that get our attention, because he said that no one who does these things of taking our hands off or, or not staying true to it, and then looking back at where we've been is not fit for the kingdom of God. I'll give you one other example that I had in, and I must have taken it out, but there's another place where when we talked about this, when I was doing my uh, devotions for the week, in, in Luke 17, Jesus is talking about the end times, and he's telling them, don't be looking around other places, don't be doing these other things, don't be distracted. He says, remember Lot's wife. And that was the title of one of my devotions for this week. Remember Lot's wife. What did she do? She looked back. She looked back into Sodom. What was that? What, what did that mean? It meant this. And you're going to think people are reading more into it than they are, but they are not. She was looking back into the sin and the sinful lifestyles and the wicked, evil city that God was destroying utterly for their perversion because it was given, as we know, to rampant homosexuality. Remember the men that, of the city that came to rape the two angels that were um, came embodied as men to rescue Lot and his family? They came to rape them. So they're leaving, and God has saved them. They're the only ones that God is saving out of this whole wicked city that he's going to destroy with fire and brimstone. Just like Noah and his family, the eight people, were the only ones God saved through the ark 
back from that wicked, evil time when God said he wished he had not even created mankind. Now Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities that are so wicked and evil that God can't even look at it. And so he sends these angels down there to uh, take care of things and to protect Lot and his family. But Sarah, what, uh, excuse me, but Lot's wife, we don't know her name, Lot's wife, turned and looked back at where they had been. We don't know if she was lusting after that. She enjoyed it. She hated to leave it. Or she was just curious about what was going on. We don't know that. But what we do know is this. She was turned to a pillar of salt for looking back. And so the no looking back theme throughout the Bible, that's in Genesis. That's in some of the early parts of the Bible. And here we are in Luke as we're into the New Testament going toward Revelation. And God is still saying, don't look back. Don't look back. No matter how good, how bad, whatever it was, don't look back. Nothing good comes out of looking back. And I've given you those examples. And Lot's wife is a good one. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, obviously, we keep looking ahead. We keep looking forward. We're in a new year. We flip this calendar every year at this time. People make resolutions. I've done that probably ever. But I have been journaling, and I'm looking at my own life and ask the Holy Spirit to take that light and shine it on and those areas of my life. And there are many that need work, that need improvement. There's so many places that I need to look like and represent Jesus so much better, so much better than I do. Perhaps they're in your life as well. But are you doing that? Are you doing that? Before we get too far in this year, have you gotten along with, along with the Lord to say, Lord, show me. Just show me. Show me where I'm tempted to look back. And don't let me look back. Show me where I'm tempted to look back. Show me those things that need to be cleaned up. Show me those areas of my life that are woefully short of representing you and representing you well. Show me areas of sin that still dominate in my life. Those thorns in the flesh, those things that I have yet to release because I'm struggling to do so. We all have them. I have them. We all have them. We do. If you're honest, we absolutely do. And there's only one way to, to, to allow for them to be removed, and they aren't always removed, by the way. Just like the Apostle Paul said, that's thorns in the flesh. But we have to, again, be in the Word and understand what he said so that we can deal with them appropriately. And take them to the Lord, as David did, as all throughout the Scripture, people are taking them to Jesus or taking them to God in the Old Testament and taking them to the Lord and just saying, Lord, I need help. I can't do this. I can't do this. Christian, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to work on you and in you so he can work through you? That's my question for you. Starting this new year, I'll say it again. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to work on you, on you and in you? in you, taking care of all that stuff, all those thoughts, all those things that get in the way, that break that fellowship, that keep you from growing in the Lord, from going and doing more kingdom work, from being a better example and representative of Christ. And that's the part of working through you. Our world is lost and dark and hopeless, and our nation leads the way. And there are many in the church like that, and yet there are many in the church who want to know the, the, how to 
make these steps forward? How can we do that? How can we grow in this new year? It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed in the 2,000 plus years. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. It is the word of God. It is the confession of sin, that repentance. It is pleading with the Lord. It is submitting to the Holy Spirit of the living God who is God to let him have his way with you. Let him have his way. For most of us, our way isn't working that great. Why wouldn't we get out of our own way and allow the Holy Spirit to have his way? In that old song, if you grew up in the church like I did, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I'm the clay. It's one of the great old hymns like the Just As I Am in that same kind of vein of wonderful, magnificent hymns. But we need to do that. All of us need to do more of that. And then for those going into this year who still struggling, or maybe you're not struggling. That's the sad part. If you don't know that you need a Savior, if you're just satisfied and content with where you are and who you are apart from Jesus Christ, there's a couple things going on there. One of them may be that your heart's been hardened because of your hard heart and that you will not receive Christ and you'll just keep projecting him all the way to hell. But I'm sent here as a messenger of the living God to tell you that that doesn't have to be the case. If you will recognize that God loves you, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, he does. <laughs> That's the general love of God. But the saving love of God comes from those or comes to those who understand, man, I, I, things are screwed up. I've got these problems here, and I can't seem to fix them. And I recognize what you're talking about with a sin in my life, my lifestyle, whatever it is. And I can't fix it. I can't do it. I've been working on it. I've been trying to get better. I've been reading books. I've been all these things, meditating, yada, yada. But here's the deal. You can't do it no matter how hard you try. But I've got good news. I've got the best news. Jesus Christ, this Jesus who was on the way to Jerusalem in our passage, as I said, to die. That's what he came for. And that's where he was heading. And he was faithful to that. He did not. Take his hands off the plow. He did not turn back from that. He stayed straight ahead and went to Jerusalem, suffered that miserable, horrible pre-death stuff, and then the death on a cross for you and for your sin and mine. And so that's the good news for you this new year is that you repent of those sins. You confess those sins and say, Lord, I, I want to repent. I want to go the other way, but I can't do it. And you just receive Christ as your Savior. First John 1, 9 said, if we confess our sin, and that's just speaking it out, praying the sinner's prayer, some call it. But that's okay, whatever it takes to confess your sin. When you do that, it says he's faithful and just to forgive that sin and then cleanse you by the blood of Christ from all unrighteousness. That's what you need to do. That's all you need to do. It's the only thing you can do. Please do that. Please do that. Don't wait another minute. Don't turn this off. I may be the last person the last person that the Lord God sends. I mean, that maybe that last messenger with Noah and all the others that came after, pleading, Jesus pleading, the disciples pleading, and being slaughtered along the way because 
Satan has such dominion over people. Does he have that over you? If he does, there's only one way out, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would receive him today, today. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, thank you for this, what we call a new year and, and your way of thinking. Time is irrelevant. You created time. And so, Lord, don't let anyone who needs Jesus, the Savior, turn him away again. Don't let anyone. Lord, please, Lord, please, convict hearts, break hearts, humble hearts to turn to you today, right now, for Christ's sake and Christ's sake alone. Amen. God bless you and have a great week. To learn more about how you can become a Christian or grow in your walk with the Lord and receive freely of all the biblically-based content we have created or donate to help keep this ministry going strong, go to onlyjesus.life. That's onlyjesus.life.